It is so good to have Jeff Hubbard back here. Thank you, Jeff. He and Nicole have been here for the month. When are you going back home? In January, a couple more weeks? All right, if you want to reach out to them and say hi while they're in town. Um, Grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 2. And I want to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these songs that we're singing were struck by the magnitude and the glory of Jesus' birth. Even that last song reminds us that, that these things that you have done deserve to be the talk of all the earth. We just sang, let no tongue on earth be silent. God, I thank you for the amazing thought that, that even today, uh, this morning, around the world, on every continent, in huge church, churches and in tiny homes and, and everything in between, Lord, this news is being proclaimed that, God, you took on flesh so that you could give your life as a ransom to give us eternal life. God, I pray that this morning you would help each one of us as we hear this good news, receive it if we never have before, believe it, or believe it more deeply than ever before, and that in believing it, it would cause us to live confidently and boldly in light of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if one thing uh, isn't clear to you so far in this morning, uh, in, this, in this service, by way of the things that we've been singing and reading, um, it is this, that Christmas is all about Jesus, the person of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is not just the personification of lofty ideals or virtues. It's not a myth that stands for some noble, uh, honorable, good things. But Jesus is no less than the eternal God and creator of everything who has always been personally, intimately, sovereignly involved in, at work in this world, bringing about good plans he's had for it from before he created it all. And that what we're remembering specifically at Christmas is this amazing once and for all way that God the Son entered into his creation, taking on a real human nature as God and showing us unmistakably how greatly he loves us. We believe these events that some of the songs that we've been singing have recounted are not myths or legends, but historical events through which God has met our deepest, greatest need in Jesus. And some of these things might sound like hyperbole or exaggeration, and they're not. Listen to this verse again that we just sang. Oh, that birth forever blessed when the virgin full of grace by the Holy Ghost conceiving bore the savior of our race and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. What an incredible thought. The world's redeemer in Bethlehem first revealed his sacred and very human face. I've gotten to visit a lot of newborn babies in hospitals over the years. Maybe you have too. I love it. 
Um, every once in a while, I've been fortunate enough to be the first visitor, the first one after the, the mom and dad and the doctors and the nurses to get to see the new baby and hold the baby. Um, one of those that I got the bragging rights was Henry Randall when he was born. I got the news and I got right in my car and drove straight over to St. Jude and I was the first one there. And Jackson reminded me, I even beat out that baby loving Carrie Rigsby. If you're at home, Carrie, oh, she loves holding newborn babies. And I'm sure it just killed you that I got there first, Carrie. I was there, I got the first selfie with Henry Randall and it was awesome. But as we read here in Luke 2, in just a second, I want us to imagine this moment and the incredible privilege that God chose to bestow on these humble shepherds who were out tending their flocks at night. And they were the first ones to whom the world's redeemer revealed his sacred face. Listen to how it went down. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. That's a lot. Praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I love that picture of the shepherds returning back to their fields and and returning to others and telling them everything that the angels had told them and what they witnessed um, lying in that manger. And I imagine that as they left, there were probably some questions in their mind. I mean, it says that all who heard the things that they said wondered at what the shepherds had told them. I can imagine some of those questions being questions like this. What kind of Savior was just born to us today? Savior from what? Savior for what? How will that baby, that baby, bring peace? peace among all those with whom God is pleased. And maybe even most profoundly, how will this humble little birth in this tiny little town become good news of great joy for all the peoples? How is what we just saw at night in this little tiny little corner going to spread and be good news for the whole world? Well, In November, we've been in this reading plan this year at Grace where each month we've taken a chunk of scripture, just a passage to read on and meditate on and reflect on. Well, in November, we were in Romans 8. 
And the more I was in Romans 8, it struck me that the opening verses of Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, particularly verse 3, Paul answers for us some of these questions that no doubt that night Jesus was born were on the minds of the shepherds and those who heard the news. God, Paul explains and answers at least these three questions. What has God done in the birth of Jesus? What has this accomplished? And who can get in on this? Who is this for? What has God done? What has that accomplished? And then who is this for? So turn to Romans 8, 1 through 4. And this is, this is where we're actually going to be for the rest of here this morning. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So first question, what has God done? Because in verse three, it so emphatically says that, that Christmas and what Christmas was for, what the incarnation was for, was that God was gonna do something that none of us could have ever done for ourselves. So what has God done? And I see two things here. First is God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's just unpack that, that phrase. In the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh is important because as Jeff read at the beginning of our service from John 1, when John said the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he did not mean the word became sinful flesh. Jesus did not become like us in that way but he was born and sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Do you remember when the angel told Mary how it was going to be that she who had never been with a man was going to bear a child? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the, one, uh, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He'll be born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful flesh. When Hebrews 2 said that he had to be made like us, his brothers, in every way, and yet not with respect to sin. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. But I want to make sure we understand that does not mean that Jesus is somehow less human. You realize, I hope, that sin is not an essential quality or aspect of our humanness, of our being made in the image of God. When sin entered in, sin was a distortion uh, and a disruption, something that marred, in a sense, the image of God in us. It didn't erase it, but it marred it. It disfigured it. Sin actually makes us less human and in that sense, Jesus is the most human human who's ever lived. So why is this important that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh? It's, look at verse 3. It's so he could do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. 
Now, when Paul says that God did something that the law couldn't do, he's really saying God did something that we couldn't do. The law isn't a person. The law isn't alive, able to do something. What he's saying is that the law was never something that could empower us to then fulfill its own righteous requirements. It could make us aware of and make clear for us what God's righteous requirements are, what he forbids and what is counter to his character and what, is, what he commands and expects from us, which is in line with his character. It can reveal those things to us, but it could never actually help us carry those things out. It could never strengthen the weakness of our flesh. And it actually magnifies how miserably fall we far from his, fall from his righteous requirements. Listen to this from Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will ever, ever be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's law actually reveals to us how sad the news is, how far we fall. You know, recently I've seen ads for a Netflix show that I've not watched, but I've seen the little ads for it. And it's a show called Nailed It. I don't know if any of you have seen the ads, but Nailed It. And it's obvious it was inspired by this internet trend in the last couple of years where people will see things on Pinterest or see these like on these uh, cooking shows of like these elaborate um, decorated cakes or these beautiful, intricate Pinterest crafts. And they'll try to make it at home and just fail miserably. And they'll take a picture of their attempt side by side with the thing that they were trying to replicate with the caption, nailed it. And they're hilarious. I mean, go Google them after church, not during church, but go Google them later. They're hilarious. You see these just miserable failures side by side with these spectacular cakes or these spectacular works of art. And I was struck by what an appropriate image that is of the way that God's law reveals to us shows us the knowledge of our sin. And it's not hilarious. Just consider some of the things that God's righteous law uh, reveals to us. Grace kids, this summer, in your BFF classes on Sundays, you were studying the Ten Commandments, weren't you? Those are just some of the righteous requirements of the law. Some of those commands are things that God forbids because they're counter to his character or they actually um, dishonor who he is. And there's other things that we are called to do because they honor him and they reflect him. But just consider some of the things that God forbids and calls sin. Worshiping anyone or anything other than the one true God. Or taking anything that God has made and raising it to a level of importance in our heart that actually rivals how we feel about God or eclipses how we feel about God. Or things like lying being deceptive, lying against our neighbor, or stealing, or coveting, envying others for what they have, wishing what they had, we had, actually resenting other people for having what we want, or murder and adultery, and all these things. Which one of us can read the Ten Commandments and say, nailed it perfectly? None of us, right? Even with murder and adultery, you might think you get a pass on that, but Jesus comes along and he says, you know, not so fast. That anger that's simmering in your heart and in your mind, maybe even never expressed, but just burning inside your head, or maybe at times coming out in destructive words, but maybe falling short of physical violence, Jesus says, 
that's liable to God's judgment. That's anger. That's hating your neighbor, someone created in the image of God. He says, you who lust in your own thoughts after someone else's wife or someone else's husband or someone else, even in the, the hiddenness of your own thoughts, committing acts in your mind that you would never actually have the courage to, to carry out in real life, Jesus says, that's still liable to judgment. It's still revealing something deeply wrong and, and, and disfigured in your heart. And it's not just obvious how far we fall short in the things that God forbids that we do anyway. But it's also revealed, maybe even more so, in the good things God calls us to that we just neglect or we simply refuse to do. The righteous requirement of the law begins with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all of your strength, not just some. How far we fall short of that, don't we? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're even to love our enemies. And as we consider this righteous requirement of God's law, and we, you can just think back on your last week if you're me, and you recognize that our lives in the, in the light and the glory of the righteous requirement of God's law is as pathetic as those nailed it cakes. It'll never match up. And the good news at Christmas is that there is one who was not weakened by flesh. Jesus, and he nailed it. In his life, he started at the beginning, at birth, because that's where our failure lives begin, at birth. Throughout our childhood, into our teenage years, into our adult years, all of it is stained by sin. And Jesus came from birth. He didn't just beam down as a full-grown man and go to the cross, if you've never stopped and thought about that before. But he started at the beginning because the righteousness that we are without, that we need God to provide, needs to be a complete righteous life. And this is what Jesus lived. He lived through his, quote, terrible twos and yet without sin. That's a mind blower if you think about that. I was thinking this week about if you've ever raised or been around two-year-olds in the terrible twos, there are some things about terrible twos I don't think that are based on sin. It's just a two-year-old's development and exploring their boundaries. And sometimes a two-year-old, you have to say, no, no, don't touch that. No, no, maybe even a little slap on the hand. Don't, don't touch that. That's dangerous. Sometimes the terrible twos are just crying because there's gas pain and they don't know how to express what's really going on. I believe Jesus did all those things yet without sin. I wonder what a two-year-old without sin looked like. I wonder if Joseph and Mary ever thought, hey, we're doing something right. <laughs> nope. But it's amazing for me to think of a teenager, a junior hire. If you are a junior hire right now, think right now, what are the things that tempt you most? The, the, the things that you are most ashamed of before God that you know are, are wrong and, and you, you've failed. Jesus was a teenager. He was a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old. He was tempted in every way as you are and yet without sin. He obeyed the Father perfectly from his first breath and to his last breath on the cross. Jesus perfectly pleased the Father. To, to think of our Proverbs series this fall, Jesus perfectly carried out the counsel of his heavenly Father. He said in, in John, John's gospel, he says, it is my food to do the will of my Father, to walk with Lady Wisdom on, the, on the, 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 the path of life. Jesus walked that his entire life, and he did so in our place and on our behalf, which is why in our passage here it says, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh so he could live that life. 
I love how one of the songs we sang this morning says it. See the true and the better Adam who's come to save the hellbound man? Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. And it's in him we stand. And we're gonna get to that in, in just a bit, the in him we stand part. But do you see what God has done? He, in sending his own son in the likeness of your sinful flesh and my sinful flesh. But he also says God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and what? For sin. There, we're not to think of the manger and the arrival of Jesus and the incarnation, but the cross where Jesus suffered and was crucified and died. And God the Father allowed that all to take place. He didn't intervene. He allowed the innocent, his innocent son to suffer on the cross. And what Paul is telling us is God, Jesus did that for sin. And he could only do that for sin, for our sin, because he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's why he could be a substitute for sin. At the cross, God was finally able, it says here, to condemn sin in the flesh once and for all in Jesus in such a way that he would never have to condemn sin in your flesh. That you would never, that you might never have to face the consequences and the full, holy, just, righteous wrath of God for your sin. Jesus stepped in and God was able to finally condemn sin in the flesh and prove himself to be the just judge, but also the gracious one who steps in as the one who receives that consequence in full. It's amazing. Again, we sang it. These songs we're singing are trying to take these truths and, and, and implant them in our heads. We sang this this morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the Lord upon the tree. Why? In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. And see the Father's plan unfold. That was the Father's plan. And for millennia, God in his amazing patience and self-restraint was withholding that judgment. Meanwhile, watching a world where one of the Psalms says that God feels indignation every day over the sin that covers this planet. And he withheld it, waiting and waiting until the moment when he finally could release it and absorb it himself in his holy son on the cross. It's amazing. That's what makes Jesus a savior. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. What happened at the cross was this. To save us from our sin, God did not lower his righteous standard, but he lowered himself. And he bore the full brunt of what our guilt deserves. He fulfilled the righteous standard in our place and then he paid for our utter failure to, to fulfill it ourselves. It's amazing. This is what God has done. So then the question is, what has that accomplished? So that happened in history once and for all, but then how does that accomplish something that comes to bear on you and I? Well, there's two things that that has, that has accomplished. Number one, it's brought no condemnation. What a beautiful phrase. No condemnation. And I want us to think about no condemnation in two senses. There is an external reality of no condemnation, sort of the facts of it. But that should lead to the internal experience 
of that reality. There's a no condemnation external reality. The external reality is this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says it very clearly that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Externally, God had a case against us. Our sin was evidence that we had betrayed and rebelled against and offended the holy God and creator of everything. And that legal debt needed to be paid and Jesus canceled it in full at the cross by enduring our, our punishment in our place. That's the external reality so that God quite literally can look at a sinful person and say, no guilt, it's paid in full. There is no condemnation that I see upon you anymore. No condemnation in the external sense means the guilt of all your sins, past, present, and future, God has permanently put in your past already at the cross. <clears throat> but there's this internal reality of no condemnation that the external is, is designed to bring about. As so I was trying to think of how does condemnation feel, how does no condemnation feel, I, was, I, I thought of the phrase in Genesis 2 and 3, first, naked and, and naked and unashamed. God created Adam and Eve in the beginning when they were without sin and everything was perfect and they, they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing they felt guilty for, uh, ashamed of, that they needed to hide or anything. But as soon as sin entered in and they knew what they had done and they knew who they'd done that against, their first impulse was to hide to try to cover themselves with leaves and, and to hide themselves from God as if they ever could. Suddenly, their experience was naked and ashamed, exposed, before, laid bare before the, the sight of the omniscient God, and they were ashamed. Isn't that our impulse with our sin? We, we, we want to we hide it somehow, or we want to minimize it, or rationalize it, or, or make it smaller than it is. Anything to not feel naked and ashamed. But even in Genesis, in the beginning, we get this little hint of what God was going to do. As he comes to Adam and Eve, he clothes them, he says, it says, with skins from an animal. Something died in order for God to clothe and cover their nakedness and their shame. Pointing forward to what Jesus was ultimately going to do for us in, in, in what we're talking about here. He was going to take away our condemnation, take away our guilt, and allow us to be clothed with his righteousness. And so the feeling of no condemnation, I think, should be feeling clothed and unashamed. And that's a battle for us, isn't it? Because we're so, I'm so aware of my sin. Even this morning, I'm aware of my sin. As we're singing and as Jeff was praying and inviting us to, to confess our sin, I'm so aware um, of, of the things that make me guilty before God and I imagine that God must still see me that way. And what Paul's saying is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sees you as clothed and therefore unashamed. There's a hymn we sing. It's not a Christmas hymn, and can it be? And it says, no condemnation now I dread. Dread is the opposite of no condemnation. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and I'm clothed with righteousness divine. 
That's the second thing here that Paul says that, that God has accomplished by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, not only has condemnation been removed, but we have been clothed. A righteousness has been provided for us. So it's like showing up at one of those fancy restaurants where you have to have a jacket and tie and you don't have a jacket and the tie and they provide that for you. In a sense, we, we come before God and we, we are not dressed for the occasion. And, and God says, I have a righteousness that, that's a perfect fit. It's the righteousness of my son. I'm gonna clothe you in it and I'm gonna see you in it. I'm gonna consider that it is just as yours as it is Jesus's. Christmas ought to remind us, magnify for us the fullness of Christ's righteousness that now counts as yours. We didn't need Jesus to just fill in a few gaps in our righteousness. We needed the whole thing. And so because of what God has done and because of what this has accomplished, that's where the good news of great joy for all people comes in. And the question, who is this for? Who can say with confidence there is no condemnation for Kenny Clark who is in Christ Jesus? How does that become ours? And the answer is, is right there in verse one. Who can have this? All those who are in Christ Jesus. All those who are in Christ Jesus. So okay, how do I come to be in Christ Jesus? We'll look back just a few chapters in Romans, Romans 3. Romans 3, 21, 22. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You don't earn it. You'll, you will never repay him for it. It's entirely upon the merits of what God has done for you in Christ. That's why it's offered as a gift, as Jason and Mr. Banana were saying. It is a gift. And so you receive it, and the only way a gift can be received is you receive it. One of the most beautiful summaries outside of the Bible, in my opinion, of, of this truth, and I've read it before preaching here at Grace. I love it, but it's worth reading again, is the answer to question 60 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which if you've never heard that, you might think, oh, this sounds boring. It's anything but. Question number six in this catechism, this, this um, set of teachings to help teach people the truths of the Bible. Question 60 is this. How are you righteous before God? Listen to this answer. If you've never heard, heard this before, say, Lord, help me to understand the, the, the magnitude of goodness that this is for me if I will understand it and believe it and receive it. And if you do believe this, I want this to just get imprinted more deeply in your heart and your mind, the truth of this. Listen, how are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commands, I've never kept any of them and I'm still prone to all evil, yet God without any merits of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. This is what gets me. As if I had never committed any sin and had myself accomplished all of the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. And here's the catch. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart, you simply have to humble yourself, acknowledge that God has done what you never could have done and receive it as the gracious gift that it is, as the best gift you could ever receive. 
If you have never turned to God in prayer and, and received that gift, said, Lord, that's me. I'm guilty. You have me dead to rights. And I realized this morning how far I fall short and, I'll, and how I'll always fall short. And I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being born in my likeness and bearing my guilt in your body at the cross. Forgive my sin. Spirit, come and, and live in me and help now renew in me your image which sin is disfigured. If you've never done that, I, I beg you to do that this morning. In fact, that blue tent back there, our prayer tent, there are folks after our service who would love to talk with you more and pray with you and help under explain. In fact, we have a gift we'd love to give you. There's these little red books called The Message of Christmas. We have a, a ton of them at that tent. We'd love for you to get one. If you know someone here this morning that you'd love to give one to, go and grab one of these at the tent afterward and, and take it and give it to someone this week. But the last thing I want to say here as we close, last question is this. If you have received that gift, how then do you make the fullest use of that incredible gift? In other words, how do we live in a more full enjoyment of this from day to day? And I don't want to borrow from one other person. This is Ray Ortland Jr. I love this. this. This illustration he gives, trying to help us in very concrete ways. Imagine, how do we on a day-by-day -day basis live the enjoyment of no condemnation? Listen. He says, the gospel's like this. God approaches you and he says, I have here a credit card. It's the credit card of justification. It accesses the infinite resources of the merit of Christ. If you take it, you can charge all your moral debt to this card. There is no limit on this card. It will give you a new credit rating in my database. And you can carry it with you at all times. Whenever you sin, you can charge it to Jesus. So I will never declare you bankrupt. How about it? Will you accept the card? And if you and I accept it and we believe God's offer and stretch out our empty hands to receive this gift, now whenever we sin, here's what we do. We take it out and by faith, let Jesus pay for it. And, we put us back, and he puts us back into the black with God. Obviously, he says, we could abuse the credit card. We could hear God's offer and respond. Just think of the possibilities. I can go on a spending spree of sin with no consequences. And he says, that, of course, is hypocrisy. The credit card is only for people of faith. And faith hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That is the only true incentive for accepting the card in the first place. This gift is for sinners whose hearts are longing to be rid of their sin. And for them... It really is as free and as wonderful as that card. It seems too good to be true. So good to be true that we're, we're afraid to say how good to be true it is because it seems like we'll just abuse it. But if by faith we long not to just be forgiven of sin, but to be free of sin because we hate sin. We hate that we still are prone to wander back to it. What amazing gift that card is. And that card, the more that that, that truth is ingrained in, in our hearts and our minds, it will transform the way we live. If that rock-solid truth would, 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 would be believed by us more firmly, we would find comfort and hope in our suffering. We would find the capacity to bear with one another and forgive and extend grace to one another in even our most strained relationships. If we really believe this more deeply, we would find encouragement 
that would lift us up in our deepest insecurities because we would realize the most important thing in this world is knowing how God sees me. And if that is no condemnation with the perfect righteousness of Christ, the other stuff is the small stuff. If we would just get this more deeply, we would find consolation, I think, in our deepest disappointments and perseverance in our longest running, most unanswered prayers. And finally, it would make us eager and bold to tell people this amazing good news of great joy. Even this week, that we would be like the shepherds, having heard these things and seen them here through God's word, we would be eager to, to, to leave here, return to wherever we're returning to this week, our, our, our family gatherings and our neighborhoods and our job and our workplaces, telling people about this great news. Let me pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for the assurance that you have done what we never could have done. And we thank you how, for how done it is. It's finished. And we thank you now for the permanent nature of no condemnation and the freedom that that invites us to now walk in. We thank you for the gift that now comes along with forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, that you now empower us to begin walking in ways that the law never could have helped. And I pray even this week that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and your spirit would be renewing in us the image that has been marred by our sin and that we would live lives, godly lives, in the upright lives in this present age as we wait for the second appearing of our Savior Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.